Thank you. Uh, it's really good to be back with you. Uh, we've gone a couple of weeks here, and uh, but uh, I really enjoy being with you. I enjoy your worship a lot. And uh, I just... Uh, Grateful for the privilege to be here these weeks uh, with you here right now. So uh, it was good that Ed Lewis was in town two weeks ago. I went to a pastor's retreat and um, a good friends there shared their flu with me. And uh, I wouldn't have been here on the 4th anyway, but Ed was in town and he was here and that was just beautiful. So I was grateful for that. But, uh, it's a good time. I want to continue with our look at the, um, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, chapter 2 today. Uh, in the second chapter, Paul expresses concern for the error that, in teaching that had crept into the church. Um, and if you might look with me in Colossians chapter 2, then in verse 1, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle... I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all of those who have not personally seen my face. And the uh, the struggle that he expresses here is the same struggle that is the same word that's used in chapter one where it says he strives to present every man complete in Christ. And the, the word uh, in it, you know, having some Greek background sometimes gets in my way, but it's very insightful to me. The, the word translated there, struggle and strive, is uh, agon, from which we get the word agony. And it's just trying to express the, the depth of Paul's feeling for the people in Colossae and his love for the church. He had never been there personally. That would be all the indication in Scripture. That they came to faith through the testimony of, of Epaphras. Uh, it's also possible that uh, Philemon maybe had become a believer before, but uh, most of the indication would be, and especially from this letter, that a young man from uh, Colossae came to Ephesus and there came to faith and went back to Colossae. But Paul had concern for the people there because there was things uh, being taught, being said, passed around within the congregation, a young congregation, probably no more than about five or six years old. And he was concerned that they not lose the personal, intimate relationship with Christ and the value of hanging on totally, solely on him. And uh, so he writes this letter to them uh, with that as a primary uh, concern of his, as well as how they related to each other because of these teachings. And uh, some of the errors that are identified in this, um, in verse 4, it says, uh, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So obviously somebody in the congregation was doing this, or somebody coming into the church was with persuasive argument uh, leading people astray. And then in uh, verse 8, it says, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. So there was heady thinking that was going on in the, in the congregation. We'll look at that a little bit closer here. But I just wanted to list some of the, the, the four things that he identified here. Uh, three, but kind of overlap the four uh, verses. And, and verse 18, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize of relationship with God by delighting in self-abasement and worship of angels and taking his stand on visions he has seen. 
And the last one in verse 20 says, don't submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These were errors in the church, uh, things that were leading people away from uh, the totality of their faith and trust in Christ alone. And he was concerned for them. These errors may be identified as three larger categories, that of legalism that came with much of the Jewish community that was there in Colossae. That of mysticism, uh, their their pursuit of angels and of special visions and uh, insights that only belong to one person. Uh, the mysticism that was in that. And then the asceticism, that which is the putting yourself down, um, uh, the self-abasement, the things of uh, uh, rejection of normal things in life to make yourself look more spiritual than anybody else. So these were the concerns they had. And so I asked the question, how do we distinguish truth from error? You've come here this morning and I said, are you confident that what I'm saying to you is true? Are you confident in what you're being taught in classes here is true? Are you confident in the counsel you get and give to each other here is is true or error? How do you know? How do you make that distinction? How do you make that assessment? I I travel in Southeast Asia quite a bit. I think I've been there about 12 times in the last 20 years. And uh, when you go to Asia, they all have different currency there. It's one of the only countries in the world, Cambodia, that has real money. Now, you don't have any clue what I just said. I don't think I have a Cambodian here. They call their, their currency reals. And that's what's the only real. I'm sorry. I just had to do that. <clears throat> but so yeah, I, have, I, I go with my American money, my, my U.S. currency, and I have to exchange it. And uh, typically, I'll travel with uh, $50 bills. And uh, because I, I can't carry a big wad of money and 50 is the largest currency that any bank will will exchange for me. Uh, a few banks may get me exchange a hundred dollar bill, but uh, 50 is about the most. And so I'll go into the bank and I'll say I would like some uh, real in Cambodia. And uh, they'll take my 50 dollar bill out like this and uh, they'll feel the paper and they'll hold it up to the light. And then they'll reach down into a, a drawer and they'll pull out another piece of paper, a $50 bill that they believe is real. And they will hold the two up and look at them to see, to verify that what I gave them was real currency. So how did they figure out that this was real acceptable money? They compared it to what they knew was true. And the same is true for us as we think in terms of what we believe in Christ and what we understand in the scriptures and what we receive from somebody else. What is true? What is the standard by which we can measure what is true and what is false? And Paul in this letter says Christ is the standard and his word is what I hear and what I'm thinking and what I'm saying consistent with what I know of Christ and what I know of the scriptures. That's the standard by which I judge. In high school, I was um, uh, <clears throat> had become a 
pretty active believer. Um, probably uh, you might even regard as irresponsible believer. There wasn't anything I wouldn't do to tell somebody about Christ, in, sometimes in very unloving ways. Um, as good intent, but just bad living. And I, I came down to understand that uh, the grace of God and the love of God needs to be expressed in loving ways if it's to be heard. Um, and it's not just the message in itself. And I had Jesus as my model. And when that became clear to me, I began to respond to people, act toward people differently. But I began to learn how I could tell the difference between what was real truth and teaching, correct teaching, and that which wasn't, by knowing what the scripture said. I wanted to go after people that were teaching on air. I was very aggressive in that way. And I had a, a pastor friend, uh, knew our family, uh, pastor at a church different than the one we were going to, but just made the comment to me. He says, Ed, you only have so much energy in life. I think it's better for you to invest your energy in proclaiming that which is true rather than fighting that which is false. If you proclaim what is true, the people who hear will see the difference between the truth and the false. And so Paul, is that's his whole posture in the, in the letter to the Colossians. He says, God's word in the person of Jesus is the standard by which we judge what is true and what is not true. What is error, what is, what is false, or what is true in God. I conduct a, a day-long adventure in the cultures of Southern California, uh, typically Saturdays, but sometimes during the week. We'll go in the morning and I give kind of an orientation to, to culture that we'd be going into that day. And then uh, we spend some time in the neighborhoods where these where the people of a given culture are living. We go to their shops and we eat their foods and, and we go to whatever is their predominant religious bent. And uh, I have one of the teachers of that group speak to the people that are with me. And then uh, during the course of the day, we have uh, spend time in conversation with people who are followers of different faiths. And those who were followers of different faiths and today happen to be followers of Jesus. And we have that kind of exposure in the course of the day. And it's a great experience to, uh, to engage another culture and understand they are really us. They're just human beings, people. You see, the they. Because they come from a different country, because they come from a different language group, they speak a different language, they, they have different values in their system, in their, in their culture, in their life, in their practice of every day, um, only makes them different in terms of culture, but not as people. And I learned that uh, people of different culture have a name and they have a face. And uh, after the experience of the day, <clears throat> I'm able to make an assessment here. I can I understand the reality of this person's life and where they've grown up and what they've learned in that, and I can weigh it against what I know is true from the scriptures, and I know how to then approach them and be a friend and communicate them something that would offer them hope that they don't have. But I need to be in the presence of, of truth to be able to discern the truth that's missing in somebody else's life. 
You can assess the validity of an individual by comparing their words and their actions. And you probably do that either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, Some people in presenting error can be very persuasive. The error becomes more obvious when the actions don't line up with the teachings of Christ. And all of us can go astray. I find it best not to um, accuse, appoint, or judge another person in what they do, but assess what they know of Christ and encourage them to that end and live in relationship with them to where I can expose them to the hope that's in Christ and the truth that's in Christ. But if I come in judgment, I shut the door. But if I come in love and grace as Jesus came to all those we read through the Gospels, he came offering them hope and assistance and, and help in their life, demonstrated his, his love and his care, spoke of it. The only people he went after were the self-righteous religious folk. And it's amazing how we can become those, a self-righteous religious folk, because all of our acquaintances meet together on Sunday. And we're, our lives are quite different than most of the world around us. And we are look a lot more righteous than a whole lot of people to take pride in how they live their life. And we lose track of the fact of how proud we can be at how righteous we are. And somehow forgetting and walking into the air that we are righteous because of who we are, not because of what Christ has done for us. And we walk in arrogance rather than humility. In Colossians chapter 1, verses, uh, in the first chapter, in verses 4 through 12, Paul praises the people in Colossae for the good, thing, good things that mark the one who is practicing the truth of Christ. So early in his letter, he sets up a standard of how to judge what's in and out of the kingdom, what's in and out of Christ, what is truth, what is error. And he listed seven characteristics that I reviewed with you three weeks, four weeks ago now. It says uh, that your faith in Christ, he honored them for their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints because of the hope that they have in the gospel. And that the gospel that they have embraced is bearing fruit and is increasing in them. And that they understand the grace of God in truth. And uh, there is evidence in their life that they're attaining steadfastness in their faith and their profession. And they're attaining patience and trusting God in the things that are difficult. And they've learned how to joyously give thanks in all situations. These are the things that he listed in chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. And we review that some weeks ago now. So central to living in the truth is walking in a relationship with Christ that produces these kind of characteristics in our life. If you like, this is a good list to look at and say on a scale of 1 to 10, where am I? Where am I in my faith in Christ? And my confidence in him, my trust. Where am I in my love for all the saints? Because of the hope we share in common in Christ. How fruitful is my life? What opportunities do I take in sharing the hope that I have in Christ with people who don't have that hope? 
what opportunities do I take to demonstrate love and concern and interest in somebody else so they can receive that word from me? How much do I judge the people around me because they're not what they ought to be and forget to look in the mirror? You see, these are characteristics of the believer, and I can measure the the validity of my life and my faith in the things that Paul has designated here as saying, these are characteristics that I, I, I praise you for because they are of Christ. In Paul, for Paul, the standard for truth is singular. It's Christ. Christ is the standard of truth. In chapter 1, he also states the centrality of the gospel, the good news, the mystery, as he called it, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. His central passion is presenting every man complete in Christ. He is not promoting a religious system of belief or life practices. He is presenting a person, Jesus, and a personal relationship with him. And that marks where you stand in your faith in Christ and all of the expressions of faith in our world today. That's what separates you. Apart from what you believe in Christ and his grace and his mercy in your life, You're no different than anybody else in the whole world without hope. Because the only thing you have to measure is how good you are. And the best you can do is do comparison. Well, I'm better than. I have a better chance than. But all of us know in our heart what we are. And gratefully, God knows. And he still receives us with grace and mercy and acceptance and forgiveness and a commitment to shape in us the person of Christ. Paul's ministry, we read in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Christ, this is Paul's statement, we proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul states everything we have in Christ is his work, Christ's work. It's his gift, everything we have. Our part is to believe in Christ and in his word and be responsive to him. To walk through life in a manner worthy of God's calling requires spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you may say, I don't know what that is and I don't know if I have it if I do. Or I'm pretty confident that I don't. Just know that the teaching here in Colossians, and read, it's just, it's three and a half pages. You can do this. Just spend time in it, mulling over it. Um, it's like it's in my back pocket now, in, in my head and my brain, and I, I know what I'm saying today and what that's going to be in two weeks. I have an idea where, uh, and you can do that. Uh, read it three times and it'll be ingrained in you. Read it slowly. And it doesn't work by putting it under the pillow and laying your head on it. Scripture doesn't come by osmosis. But I just just see that we have here that what we have in Christ is a, a gift. The spiritual wisdom and understanding is a gift from God to all who pursue pursue him, who are growing in him. 
Seek him and he reveals himself to us. He willingly does that. Well, the first error that I referenced at the beginning is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The error that was in the church. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world. And so I asked the question, what is philosophy? Uh, uh, philosophia. That's a philo. Phileo is the Greek word, and Sophia, the other word that makes the word up. Phileo is love, and Sophia is wisdom. And so, philosophy is the love of wisdom. Now, how can that be an error? Solomon encourages us in the Proverbs that we are to pursue wisdom and understanding. And God tells us we're wise when we seek understanding. So what's the difference? Is it the wisdom of God or is it the wisdom of man? So what love do I have? I would love to explore the thoughts of man and the... the, uh, imaginations of the things that uh, things may have happened this way or could have been this way. And why do we in our school system today have a whole system that teaches that God isn't? Or if he is, he's irrelevant and we don't bring him up in the classroom. We don't acknowledge that in life. That's our educational system today. And we seek the wisdom, the wisdom of man, and not the wisdom of God. And that can happen in the church, easily. We all live in the world around us. We all take in the media that's giving us a message that's contrary and different than Christ all the time. We grow accustomed to it, and it isn't long before we're not very discerning and making an understanding in our own heart and life. Is, you know, is that true or not? But what happened to the people in Colossae is that they were becoming captive in their minds through the philosophy and empty deception, lies, according to the tradition of men and the elementary principles of the world. I have to keep track of a statement Solomon also said in Proverbs 14:12. There's a way which seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. The truth that uh, Paul brings to this to the philosophy is uh, at the at the conclusion of verse eight. It says, "See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." I need to make that distinction as I weigh what I'm hearing as a believer, and Paul then. And the verses that follow, uh, verses 9 through 15, there in, in chapter 2, he makes the case for Christ. It says in verse 9 and 10, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God, deity, dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. 
I can trust him. And you can sit here today and say, um, well, that's what you think, because you embrace that Christian thing. And I come back and I say, out of, out of kindness and gentleness and understanding of my own, own heart and life, where is your hope? Where do you take the stuff in your life that you have to hide? What do you do with the guilt of things that you've done that have hurt others and you just live with? Where do you go when life is over your head? When there's nothing but fear left in your heart, where do you go? All the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. He lived and walked among us in history. This isn't folklore. I can trust him. In verse 11, And in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This feels awkward. But I come in the picture that is here is that there was a religious practice among the Jews of circumcision. It was the putting off of flesh. And what he's saying here is that in Christ, the, the desires and, heart and the evil heart of the flesh have been cut off by Christ. Set apart for him. In verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been, we died with Christ and we have been risen with him. I think you heard that last Sunday. And this is a picture of what baptism represents for us when we go down into the water and come up out of the water. We go down into the water and baptism identifying with his death and we come up out of the water identifying with his life, the risen Christ. We die, he lives. That's a principle in in the teaching of Christ. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 if you want to find it. In verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. When we were dead, finished in this life, he offered his life for us and still does. Forgiven us all. Of our transgressions. And he knows everything that's in our heart. I think I love Hebrews 4. He says that all things are open to the all-seeing eyes of God with whom we will give an account. He even knows the intentions of our heart. And we don't know those. And he still loves us and forgives us all of all these things. Why do I need anything else but him?
Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of uh, decrees against us, which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Whatever the decision was of the jury, whatever the judge put down as the sentence, whatever that piece of paper was, anything that could be brought against us, Jesus took that paper and nailed it to his cross and died paying the penalty that you and I deserve. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him on the cross. I looked at that verse and I was thinking, who are the rulers? Who are the authorities? What was the public display? What did he triumph over? And uh, I just happened to come across Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. That through death, he, Christ, might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil, the accuser. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid any accusation paid for any accusation that Satan could raise against us and hold us in bondage. I'm forgiven in him, in Christ. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What I've just read for you in these verses 9 through 14, 15 is a list of all the things that God has already done for us and is doing. We've been made complete. There's nothing missing in our life from God's perspective. And he's still at work in us. If it's that whole principle that, that I, am, I am saved presently, I am being saved as it practice out, it works out in the practice of my life, and I will be saved when I stand in His presence. We have been made complete. I'm complete today in His mind. I'm already declared righteous in His mind because of what Christ did for us on the cross. We are set apart to Christ. We are buried and risen with Christ. He's made us alive together with him. He forgave us of all our transgressions. He canceled out our debt on the cross. He disarmed spiritual authority. And all of those things, the truth, Christ accomplished everything for us himself without any of our help. Why do I need anything else? Why do I pursue the imaginations of my mind or spiritual experiences or things that would validate truth for me when the truth is already recorded for me and practiced in my life? Another error in verse 16. Therefore, uh, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath days, keeping certain... um, Doing special things to gain privilege or position with God. Verse 17 that's not on your screen says things that uh, these things are just mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Sabbath was a picture of God's rest. It's a picture of what is to come. Our rest in him. Uh The festivals were celebrations of God's work, presence, and and his provision for the the people, for the Jewish people. And these were all ceremonies and practices, positions, postures that were practiced by the Jews. And if you didn't do these things, you couldn't be a very good Jew or not a Jew. 
And you can't be a follower of Christ if you don't become a Jew first. That was the think. And that was the air and the message that had come into the Colossian church. And verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, which is your your calling in Christ, your presence with him, and your hope in, in the day you'll stand in his presence. Defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Anything that we base our faith on that requires our involvement will only result in pride. Understanding that everything in our faith and relationship with God is based on what Jesus has already done, his grace and his mercy towards us, results in humility and gratitude. I've been in church every Sunday for 45 years. I want my ribbon. You understand what I'm saying? We accumulate the good things we do and think somehow we ought to get credit for that. When God calls us to do the good things we do out of gratitude and humility for what he's done for us. I can't do anything to prove anything to God. He already knows. The heart is deceitful. It's wicked. Who can know it? God is the one who searches the heart. That's Jeremiah 17.9. I may have next Sunday's message already done. No. I think we're going to finish here. We'll be good, I think. So, <clears throat> Paul's, uh, Paul's calling to their attention that... Uh, the self-denial of things in your life does not add value to you in relationship with God. Scripture does teach that uh, spiritual discipline, uh, the practice of things that put me in relationship with Christ, put me in his presence, that put his word before me, that opens my heart to him, the practice of those kind of disciplines in my life is profitable. A lot of years ago, lose track could be 15 could be 20 who knows but it was the day and time when in Christendom it was a um, a very public thing to do to practice a 40 day fast because Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights and it's a very good religious experience they never use those terms but a very spiritual experience just to 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 practice the uh, setting yourself aside for this time and focus on God. And being a believer who wanted to honor God in all things, I thought if this can help me walk more closely with the Lord or it can be insight to me, then I wanted to do that. And so I did. And I went on a juice fast, vegetables and, and fruit and water for 40 days. I don't remember the nights. But I was uh, I came down to the, toward the end. Actually, the first three days were very difficult. And after the third day, I just didn't have any hunger for the whole rest of the time. But about day 39, day 40, I started to feel hunger and agitated. 
And I finished that whole fast, and I thought, huh, well, I did it. And then I searched my heart in it, and I said, the only thing I walked away with is that I really don't need as much food as I think I do. (laughs) I didn't change my relationship with God. God had already done what he had done for me. Jesus already did everything that I need in my life for me. And he's already present with me and promised to be present with me. And God's already promised to shape the likeness of Christ in me. Fasting is a good thing. Although two months after I quit the fast, I was very sick. I was still eating healthy. So, you know, no salt, a lot of water, no lean meat or meats, you know. I got really sick and went to the doctor and he did a blood test and stuff. He said, he said, uh, tell me, young man. I kind of like that. That was a statement. He said, tell me, young man, um, do you um, do you eat meat? I said, no, no, it's not good. It's uh, fatty and it's, it's not good. It plugs up your arteries. <clears throat> do you use salt? I said, no, no. No, no, I don't, because it, it hardens the arteries. It's, it's not a good, a good thing for your body, so I avoid salt. And he said, well, I want to show you your blood work. We have a thing that's called um, a measure of uh, sodium in your body, sodium and chloride, and also a measure of reserves of sodium chloride in your body. You have zero sodium chloride in your body, and you have less than half of reserves. You are dying. So, so much for being noble and spiritual and doing a fast. I've never had a prescription like this before, but he said, on your way home, will you stop at In-N-Out, get a hamburger and salt your fries? (laughs) I'm only trying to, it's, it's fun to tell the story, but my point is really simple in this. You and I already have all that we need in Christ. Don't ever lose track of that. Don't be led astray by somebody that has something new. Or, have you experienced this before? Or, man, it's like I had this, this, this dream, and it's like I was in the presence of God. Have you ever had that before? You ought to seek that. That'd be a really good thing. Cool. I, I'm really cool because I've had this. Don't say that. But that's the implication of the conversation. Those who've had a vision for something. There's a whole religious system in our world today built on one man's vision that nobody can attest to. You don't need extra things. In my college days, I pursued a a church context in which I felt there was freedom to really worship Christ and celebrate Christ. And and, uh, I even discovered that I I could... speak in a language that nobody else knew but God. I was speaking the language of angels. It was really cool. I felt great. I felt so excited and lifted after being in a service and stuff. And after about six months, for some reason, I felt very dry. I'd only been a believer maybe ten years at that point, but I had enough experience in life and the scriptures and the book to know better. But I looked back and reflected on what was my experience that moved me so much. Was it based in Scripture? As a matter of fact, I don't even remember there opened the Bible in one of those services that I was a part of that felt so good. 
I said, experience is real. Experience can be fickle. It can be real fickle. I need to base what I do and practice in my life and what I understand and what I share from what the truth that is already recorded in Scripture and been validated for over 2,000 years. Actually, more than 4,000 years. I want to go back to Moses. but So, I'm just saying simply to you, that we can trust Christ in all things. The truth is, our spiritual life is found only in holding fast to the head Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which isn't from God. That's almost an exact quote from Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. True spiritual life is found being in the body, being in the book, being present before the Lord, together. That's where growth comes. It doesn't come through your special knowledge. The truth recorded in in verse 21, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And I might add pride. So error is any wisdom and belief that's based on the tradition of men, elementary principles of the world, Pride inflated by fleshly mind, arrogance, not holding fast to Christ, following the commandments and teachings of men, practices of no value, which are all practices of no value against fleshly indulgence. The truth is, we are complete in Christ already. So don't seek anything else. Seek to grow in him. What are we to do? Pursue Christ with all, with him comes all the treasures of wisdom and understanding full assurances. Pursue what encourages your heart and knits you together in love. What are we to do? Maintain good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. Walk through life with a repentant, humble faith of a new believer. Firmly rooted, continuing to be built up, established in your faith, overflowing with gratitude. What are we to do? Submit to Christ's authority, not man's demands. Refuse the attempts of man to put you under obligation. And you can follow your theme. Be intentional this week. In your pursuit of Christ... Growing in your knowledge and understanding of life in him. And good things will come. Father, thank you that uh, 
we stand complete uh, before you and that we as your people, as your body, uh, our tangible representation of you in the world we live in and the community we live in and the families we're a part of. Help us, Lord, to walk in faithfulness to you in pursuit of you, that we may experience the fruit of your spirit in our life. Fill us with that wisdom, Lord, that can discern what is what is the right choices to do. What are the things that are productive and healthy? Help us to know how to build each other up. Grant us the joy of knowing your presence. Grant us the joy of knowing that we walk and live and have the promise and hope in the God eternal who created all things. Even you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I have to do something new next Sunday. I got through it all. <laughs> I'd be, I could treat you all to lunch today if this bill were real. I also have a $1 million bill that I brought with me today. Uh, I'll sell it to anybody for half price. You, you got, you, you got 500,000. I'll trade you for it. That's it. Watch for the real thing, not the counterfeit.